Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Why are you stuffing your mouth with grapes? I have to. The Jade Helm military drills in Texas are the precursor to a worldwide currency collapse. That's why the super elite are converting their cash to gold and retreating to their doomsday bunkers. <laughs> but why the grapes? If enough Americans eat 700 grapes per person by midnight tonight, it'll stave off the worst of the crisis. Where do you get these ideas? It was on the internet. Or maybe it was that weird guy at spin class. He always seems to know this stuff ahead of everyone else. Were you aware that the British hedge fund manager Nevin Spreadworthy has moved his entire family to a 1,000-acre ranch in New Zealand to wait out the collapse? There must be some way to test the truth of these statements. Greg, hello. This is 2015 calling you in 1980. Empirical testing of reality is so disco. Today, what we believe is the truth. What they believe is propaganda. As Thomas Jefferson said, I'll take the truth any day. Did he really say that? I don't know, but the point is that I believe he said it. Now, if I'm going to finish all 700 grapes, we have to speed things up. Today's show is about propaganda, the subtle kind. And now TMZ changed his position on cloning Diane Sawyer. Colin McEnroe. Yeah, actually, I'm so, I've been turned around so many times on that one, I don't even really, really know where I come down right now. So we're going to talk about propaganda today. We're going to talk about it, I mean, maybe not the way that you think of it, in some banana republic where there's a, a car with a speaker mounted on top, uh, blaring out slogans and things like that, but more the way, in fact, belief kind of gets into your bloodstream, gets into your own belief system. Uh, how does that happen? Why do people believe what they wind up believing. So uh, joining us right now is uh, Jason Stanley, uh, a professor of philosophy at Yale and the author of several books, including most recently, How Propaganda Works. Uh, also joining us in a second, if not now, oh, now, I guess, now, <laughs> Elian Glazer, uh, the author of, among other books, Get Real, How to See Through the Hype, Spin, and Lies of Modern Life. So um, I'm going to get you both started with this, Jason. I'll start with you, but I want to hear both of you on this because you've both written about this, okay? And so here's an example from my past. I mentioned in an introduction that ran before the news. For 16 years, I was on a radio station, uh, a commercial AM radio station, that tracked conservatives. Most of the people who were on the station and listening to the station were conservative. I was this kind of house liberal. And I used to talk to people all the time. It was a great experience because I talked to a lot of people who believed the opposite of what I believe about a lot of things, which is, in fact, something that Americans don't do very often, talk to people who don't agree with them. And one of the things that surprised me all the time, and you've both treated of this, it was that these people always objected to the notion of taxing the rich at a higher rate, that you, no matter what you told them about marginal tax rates or how they've worked in the past, I would point out that in the 40s, 50s, uh, 60s, the top marginal tax rate on the, you know, on the very rich was up to 90% at times. You know, we didn't collapse. We didn't devolve into socialism. They didn't care. They really objected to it. They thought it was wrong. It was not fair. It was redistribution of wealth. It was a lot of things. Um, but they weren't rich. Then <laughs> they were never going to be rich unless they hit, hit Powerball, unless they won the lotto somehow. They were never going to be rich. But it really bothered them to, to, to think that making our public systems work by getting more money from rich people, that, that they objected on principle to that whole idea. So um, I'm going to start with you, Jason. Um, how does that happen? How, does, how do people turn against their own interests? 
Well, this is a very old topic in the history of our country in particular. And, and before, you, you go back to Hume and Weber and all kinds of people on this topic. That's right. Uh, part of it has to do with shifting people's identification. So here in this country, it goes in part through race. So you get whites to identify with uh, rich people, with whites, and as against giving taxes to people who are not people they identify with, blacks. Uh, this is an old story. Uh, prevent the poor whites and the poor blacks from getting together and and forming a labor movement for some, uh, for example. But the crux is is identifying, uh, coming up with a social identity where you connect yourself to the people being taxed. So sometimes it's aspirational, uh, but it you create these uh, certain media outlets create this us versus them mentality, and you're you identify yourself with the wealthy. Uh, America keeps its wealthy and it's super wealthy in New York City and San Francisco, and so people who might be making a hundred thousand dollars a year in their environment they might be wealthy, so they might connect themselves with somebody whose class interests are in fact entirely different. Uh, so that's key to to ideology and propaganda is creating this sense of identity, and people often form their identities together with others who are quite different from them. Um, Elian Glazer, I w- wondered, and you, we should say you're joining us from the studios at Oxford, uh, I wondered if uh, it were any different in Britain, uh, but reading your writing, it doesn't suggest to me that it is terribly different. Tell us more about that. Yes, hello. Um, yes, I mean, I think there is a great similarity. There's an American writer that I very much admire called Thomas Frank, and he wrote a book called What's the Matter with Kansas, um, which was all about this phenomenon of blue-collar republicanism, um, of working-class voters voting against their interests. And we have the same phenomenon now in, in the UK, and it's called blue-collar conservatism. And so we have a conservative government um uh, at the moment, and they're very fond of wearing high-vis jackets and hard hats and holding press conferences in tractor factories and um, very much spending their time with um, with very visibly working-class um, men, usually. Um, and, uh, and, and so there's this great um, fiction that's, that's perpetuated by the ruling elites that actually um, that they share, as you're saying, Jason, that they share the interests of the working class. And um, I mean, the, the debate about false consciousness is very, it's very interesting one. And, and I think there's an argument to be made that working class voters who vote for elites that are, for example, eroding union rights, they're not, they're not stupid. And there's an argument that they could be simply adopting a value system um, which is an aspirational value system. So, so I think it's important not to to just um, say that they're duped. But I do think that there's a great deal of subtle persuasion that that's um, gone into this blue collar conservatism phenomenon, which is which is a form of deception. And it is it is a way of saying, you know, everyone can rise up if they just try hard enough, that everyone can make it, that aspiration is for everybody. And that ignores the structural barriers um, that are in place, which stop the majority of people doing that. So so I do think that there is this subtle form of propaganda at play. 
I think I wonder if there's something even more deeply embedded. You both used the word aspirational. Let me tell you just a quick story, and this isn't from the conservative side. It's kind of from the liberal side. So this is a story that's maybe apocryphal, but I doubt it. It's about Ted Kennedy's first campaign for Congress. Okay, so he's part of the Kennedys. He's part of the closest thing America uh, has or has probably ever had to a royal family. Um, And he's running his first time, and he's kind of incompetent. He's not really very good at it. He's in a debate, and his opponent has him on the ropes, and his opponent is denouncing him. Him, really for his class. And he's saying, my opponent has never done a real day of work in his life. He does. He's from a family where he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't know what a job is like. He's never gone to work. He, he doesn't know what our lives is like are, are like because he's never worked. And Kennedy didn't really have a very good response to that, supposedly. Afterwards, so the story goes, this Irish-American working man comes up to him, laborer comes up to him, whacks him on the back and says, don't worry about it, Teddy. You haven't missed a thing. Um, and, and so... And, Elion, in your writing, you talk about how um, when a bank holiday was announced in Britain, I think it's in your writing, for the um, for the uh, uh, Prince William Middleton nuptials, initially people kind of grumbled about that. You know, why is that a reason? And then as the time drew, drew near, it's almost something a little bit more primitive and atavistic woke up in, in them. And they really did, in, in fact, want to subscribe to that uh, in a way that, that almost seemed a little rational. Is that fair? Yeah, I mean, it was bizarre um, that the royal family in this country absorbing huge amounts of taxpayers' cash. Um, but somehow there's been this strange marriage of the tabloid press uh, and the working class and elite interests. So that there is this extraordinary uh, sort of um, attraction and, and enthusiasm um, that, that people have for the ruling class. And actually the Queen had her jubilee recently uh, and the front uh, page headline of the Sun newspaper, a tabloid here was, thank you, mom. You know, so there's this idea that we've entered this great age in which, you know, deference is dead and we're all iconoclastic. And yet, you know, there is this great reverence for elites. But I think the interesting, I think where propaganda comes in is that what elites are doing is, you know, like uh, David Cameron, our prime minister in his hard hat, in effect, on the factory floor, what our royals do is that they... They sort of pretend to be just like you and I. So there's a, a great video, that my favourite video of Prince William, um, and it's when he's on a, a sort of a gap year expedition to Chile uh, after he graduated as a student. And uh, this video shows him cleaning a toilet. And um, it was shown as part of a documentary on the royals in the run-up to the, to the uh, wedding. And uh, and the, the the notion was, look, you know, even Prince William is happy to get his hands dirty. You know, he's he's uh, he's not he doesn't have airs and graces. He's just like one of us. And also, the Queen makes a great show of riding on a, n- a normal commuter train to her estate in the country. Um, and so, I think for me, this is where the propaganda comes in. It's um, it's in these this myth that's propagated that they are ordinary people. And and that's what allows us to uh, to, to retain this, this reverent attitude towards them. Jason, in your work, I, I sense that, I mean, uh, the, the key to propaganda is you shouldn't have to do it all the time, right? You should, uh, to be successful at propaganda, you should create the framework, you should embed the codes in people's psyches and their consciousness, and then you just have to kick a couple of tripwires and they activate. So, I mean, let's look at something fairly real and recent. So, uh, President Obama introduces the Affordable Care Act. The first thing that happens, there's a battle over nomenclature. We're going to call it that. We're going to call it Obamacare. If it's Obamacare, it's a little bit more scary to a group of people. And then we see this explosion 
explosion of unrest. People who I remember that summer of the so-called town hall meetings. You walk around and there were just it really seemed like we were under assault in some way, you know. And there were these just horrible explosions of rage and things being hung in effigy and 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 I mean just a real. It was really the kind of the rise of the Tea Party movement too. Um, uh, fast forward today. You know, it's got its glitches, it's got its bugs. It's basically a pretty successful social program. You'd have a heck of a time trying to take it away from people at this point. Um, it's been embraced, I think, even and used by some of the people who thought it was creeping socialism. So, so, but so, why did that happen? Why was it so easy to start that bonfire about the Affordable Care Act? Uh- Okay, that's a great question. Let, let me quickly point out that the subject we're discussing as the uh, d- discourse about England suggests is very old. I mean, in 1548, Etienne de la Beauté publishes Discourse on Voluntary Servitude and wonders, and Spinoza wonders in the 16th century, Spinoza in the 16th century, why is it that people, uh, that men will give their lives for the glory of someone so someone else may boast? I mean, this is an old problem we're discussing. People have always died in the name of monarchs. I mean, why does that help them? So uh, so there's an old philosophical problem here. Now, as far as the Affordable Care Act goes, that was very interesting uh, and needs some unpacking. Uh, I think there we've got uh, – we need to bring in an idea that the uh, historian – that the uh, scholar Brittany, Brittany Cooper at Rutgers has, has defended, that the notion of public is now become racialized like welfare once was. And so the idea that you would have a public subsidy uh, is connected in people's minds with the same ideology and stigma of food stamps, welfare, etc. So – you have a black president trying to give a new public subsidy to people who don't have insurance, and it's been become racialized. The trick in American politics is to racialize everything, is to racialize apparently neutral vocabulary, gang, uh, public, so that people are suddenly opposed to it because that's them and not us. So I think that's what happened with the Affordable Care Act. And it's interesting that you mentioned the Tea Party in that regard because the Tea Party originally arose because of rage at bailouts for bankers. And so that, one might think, is a legitimate source of rage, but then it was twisted and aimed in another direction at health insurance for people who don't have it. So the question is, how does a movement that begins with, a, one would think, an appropriate target, $2.9 trillion for the banking industry so people can make $1 million uh, bonuses, uh, is that a good use of public money? Uh, that's, those are legitimate questions. The Tea Party has a legitimate basis, but then it, it gets corrupted and all that anger gets redirected and racialized. So um, I just I would just sort of modify what you said in one way, which is that um, um, and I'm trying to remember the guy's name. I think it was something like Rick Santarelli or something like that. It was, he was a guy on CSNBC or one of the cable networks, and he had this yeah. kind of um, Howard Beale moment where he was just screaming. He was mad as hell. He wasn't going to take it anymore. But he was really directing a lot of his rage, and I think this was racialized too, against people who were defaulting on their mortgages, which was causing the de- the credit default swaps to collapse. So in, in other words, this whole system of derivatives. Uh, what the derivatives were were packaged mortgages. And in people's minds, what was conjured up was the notion 
position of often probably a family of color getting a house they couldn't really afford. They got a mortgage that they didn't deserve. And the whole thing was coming down because of that. And if you look at what Santorelli said, he was kind of saying that stuff. But Eliane, I want to come back to the idea, and, and this is very much in your work, that um, that propaganda, if you have to, if you can see the wires, if you can see the wires and the buttons and the mechanics of it, it's not working as well as it should, right? It should work at the level of what you, borrowing on, on somebody else's terminology, talk about as a nudge. But before we get to the nudge, I want, uh, somebody suggested this to me. Christine Stewart was on one of our earlier shows today and heard what we were talking about. And she said, you know, you should play a tape of children playing the this clapping game. It's a game that little girls play where they clap and they recite a rhyme. So, and she had one in particular. So, I'm going to have uh, Wolfie play that right now. Big Mac, filet of fish, quarter pound of French fry, icy coke, thick shake, Sundays and apple pie. You deserve a break today at McDonald's. So, Elian, these are little American girls. Nobody told them to do this. This is a folk tradition somehow. I mean, maybe it was virally inserted by scheming, you know, PR people somewhere up the ladder. But but at a certain point, it, it didn't have to be anymore, right? The little, little girls are willing to chant things about McDonald's to entertain one another, you know, sitting on the grass on a summer's day. That's when you know this has worked. Yeah, it's a lovely example. I mean, I, what really interests me actually about the the word propaganda is that it has two very con- contrasting meanings. So on the one hand, it, it has the connotations of something very overt. And this, you know, commun- communist Russia or China has these very, you know, clunking fist of government propaganda and so on. So on. But there's a the opposite meaning of the word is something that's very subliminal, um, something that comes in under the wire. And I think that's very interesting. And actually, ideology also shares that sort of double meaning of overt and covert. And I suppose what I think is that in the modern West, that we assume that we're free citizens, that we're savvy at reading advertising and, and we're sophisticated um, citizen consumers. But actually, the, the form of propaganda that we have in the modern West is this covert form. And that's why we have things like advertising, which we wouldn't necessarily think that we have propaganda, but clearly advertising is a form of persuasion. But it, but even more interestingly, I think, is PR, is the way in which things that seem uh, much more insidious, that aren't framed as adverts as such, as you're, as you're implying, um, that... That the, the forms of persuasion that are really on the rise are these much more insidious forms. So PR is, is taking over from advertising. And it's a really interesting distinction, actually, within advertising, above the line and below the line. So above the line advertising is billboards that we know are telling us something. Below the line advertising is marketing, direct mail, um, and, and so on. And PR really fall, falls into that below the line category. It's, it's advertising that you can't see it as such. And I think that the rise of social media introduces this voluntary um, element even more so that we might share an entertaining viral advert on Facebook because it's genuinely entertaining. It's a really funny video. And it's a bit like those children singing this song is that it, it, it becomes a form of, of voluntary advertising that we participate. And actually, marketing literature is full of this talk of engagement. You know, let's not have 
top-down top-down lectures from advertisers to the public. Let's have a two-way conversation with our consumers so they really get involved in selling our product. And I think it's that voluntary element, that that sort of willful entertainment um, element that that makes this form of propaganda, if you like. Um, even more insidious. Uh, Eliana, I do want to just uh, have you talk a little bit about nudge. Now, you talk about David Cameron having a nudge unit. Is that a term of art from within the Cameron administration? I know it arises from somewhere else, but would he, would David Cameron, does he think about this as his nudge unit? Yeah, I mean, I think it's official title, something like the Behavioral Insights Team. But it very, <laughs> but it very quickly became the Nudge Unit, and I'm sure that was, you know, a willing sort of soundbite um, from from within the government. And but it's, uh, Nudge policy is really interesting. It was it was masterminded by um, two American writers, um, Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, who are incredibly influential. I think they're sociologists who influence governments all over the world. Um, and what they say is is a very positive message, message in a way. It's that uh, let's not have um, chips at eye level in a school um, cafeteria. Uh, let's have salads at eye level so that the children reach for the salads instead of the chips or fries, as I should say. <laughs> um, now, so there are lots of public health benefits that come from this form of um, paternalism, you know, um, helping people to make the best choices about health, about uh, paying into a pension plan, organ donation. There's lots of examples like this. But actually, the interesting thing about Nudge is that in practice, uh, the Nudge unit in the UK has been working with uh, fast food uh, giants such as McDonald's. Um, and so uh, the Nudge unit becomes a, a way for big business to actually work with consumers in this sort of friendly, voluntary arrangement sort of way. So we don't, we're not paternalistic. We, we don't, the government doesn't come down and tell companies to cut sugar and fat. They enter into a voluntary arrangement with those companies. And then the companies enter in, into a two-way conversation with consumers to, to voluntarily reduce um, sugar consumption. But the, the catch is that we don't, have the we don't have the information to make good choices. So actually those very same fast food giants are pressuring supermarkets to, to remove informative labelling on food. So actually, you know, they, they say information is power, but actually we don't have the power to make informed decisions, which is why these forms of subtle behaviourist persuasion are so effective. Um, Jason Stanley, you talk about propaganda as being... Um, sort of effectively or an innately illiberal tool. Say what you mean by that. So the idea in liberal democracy is that we discuss policies. All of us discuss policies. policies. So there's, there's, there's two values of liberal democracy, freedom and equality. So the idea is if we're going to discuss a policy together and it's going to be a policy for us, then it better not constrain our freedom. So all of us have the right, right to have an input into the construction of that policy. And secondly, it has to take everybody's interest e equally into, into concern. So freedom and equality, those are our two values. So what propaganda does is it subverts the process by which we collectively decide on a policy that is binding for all of us. Uh, and so, for instance, if you lie to people about the effects the policy will have on them, uh, then, uh, or then they're not going to be freely deciding on whether or not they should adopt that policy. 
Uh, Because those two values, freedom and equality, are so central to democracy, to liberal democracy, they're also the ones most involved in propaganda. So you always hear, for instance, uh, the Confederate flag is supposed to represent liberty and independence. But wait, it was a defense of slavery, which is kind of the opposite of liberty and independence. Uh, Liberty and independence for whom? Uh, Equality as well, a, a standard way to speak in public is to pretend that you're speaking for everyone. You're saying that, oh, this is good for everyone. This is going to be good for this city to uh, to gentrify it. Uh, it'll improve the city, but will improve it for whom? Um, so that's politicians in liberal democracy regularly present themselves as speaking for everyone, but they're often speaking for interest groups uh, instead. So, so democracy is a hard road. I'm not saying that it's even possible. But if if you're trying to follow liberal democratic practices, you need to be honest, open, transparent, um, and and speak to the interests of everyone involved. Um, I want to grab a call from Mike, then we're going to grab a break. We'll come back with a second segment uh, with both Elian uh, and Jason Stanley. So here's uh, Mike in Middlefield. Hi, Mike. Uh, hi. Um, yeah, so uh, this is actually related to what uh, Jason Stanley was just saying, but um, there's a, a a book written by the historian called Stuart Ewan, and he um, he writes about a guy called Ivy Lee, one of the early PR people, and um, he sort of tacks the uh, or, or tracks the start of PR um, to the social movements of the 1930s in the United States of America, and the the threat arising from democracy is the way the historian. Uh, Ewan puts it. And so I, I was curious um, about this, this notion of the threat of democracy as it's, a, as it's deployed today. Um, I mean, there's, a, there's an ad out there, I'm not sure if any of the guests have seen, about um, walls coming down. It's an ad for the Marine Corps, um, which is kind of a wild ad. I don't know if, I mean, if they've seen it, uh, I'm sure there's thoughts about it. But, uh, but anyway, yeah, this, this threat of democracy as it's deployed today. All right. Yeah, I probably haven't seen the ad, but go ahead, Jason. Great. Uh, That's a great question. It's a repeated theme throughout the 20th century, in the 20s and 30s, very much so, and also all the way up, I mean, in the 70s, that somehow there are too many voices crying for attention, and we need some method to keep democratic decision-making solely in the province of experts and elites. So in, the 19, in 1975, there's a trilateral commission report where Samuel Huntington, the Harvard political scientist, says there's a crisis of democracy in the United States. Too many voices are trying to, to speak simultaneously and have an effect on policy. This is supposed to be a crisis of democracy. And so Huntington re- recommends that, uh, that we the government brings authority figures onto television to make people feel that they're not capable of contributing to policy discussions, economists, so-called education experts, uh, and the like, to make people feel, well, they just don't have enough schooling to, to weigh in on policy decisions. And you find this in the 1920s, too. Throughout the 1920s, you have so-called educational scientists and uh, vocational uh, vocational experts and efficiency experts. They, the word efficiency gets is is prominent here. Um, talking about educational efficiency, for instance, uh, science tells us that uh, women 
who go to college end up being homemakers anyway. So therefore, they should just take we should have in our public schools, they should mainly be focused uh, for women's education on home economics. So you have this persistent idea, misuse of the term democracy, that, you know, democracy is under threat from too many people having a say. And that really is at its height and fruition in the teens and 20s. And I think we're seeing another time now. Um, I want to go back to that, and uh, but we're going to take a break. Uh, we've got Eliane Glazer. Uh, she's the author of the book Get Real, How to See Through the Hype, Spin, and Lies of Modern Life. And Jason Stanley, whose uh, book is How Propaganda Works. We'll have more after this. We're back. We're talking about the multiple, multiple meanings of the word propaganda. With us in studio is uh, Jason Stanley. His book is uh, How Propaganda Works. Eliane Glazer is joining us from studios in Oxford. Her books include Get Real, How to See Through the Hype Spin and Lies of Modern Life. So, Eliane, I want to take this sort of from the other side and look at it. And, and I'll give you an example as recent as last night. So last night, uh, the national tour of the musical Kinky Boots arrived here in Hartford. And I was there last night. And so there's this audience there, 2,700 people. The theater's packed, packed, packed as like sardines. Um, and there are some gay people there and there's some young people there. But predominantly, this is a very uncool, unhip uh, uh, <laughs> looking suburban white audience. And they're out of their minds with joy at this musical. They're cheering. They're yelling uh, uh, with joy and admiration and affection for transvestites uh, and drag queens. Um, and I'm thinking, wow, in a certain sense, um, this is symbolic of a whole series of social battles that have been won by what I would consider to be the right side here in the U.S., right? And you look at recent Gallup polling in the U.S., and there's sort of more tolerance for all kinds of things, interracial marriage, gay and lesbian behavior, um, you name it, even having children out of wedlock. Um, uh, approval and tolerance is going up on all this stuff so that you really do have this America in which the, the tension that's implicit in kinky boots doesn't even work. It seems out of date. Like who who would do anything other than think this was really fun and great and, and admirable? And so but I'm sure there's a segment of the American public that says, wow, their propaganda, their propaganda worked. Uh, our, you know, the, their propaganda beat our propaganda. We don't believe that any of that stuff's okay. So is it the case that propaganda is a word that we use for their message, whereas truth, justice, and, and the American or British way uh, is the word term that we use for, for our information? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, it's a good point that propaganda is whatever it is that the other side do. And it's the same with ideology. So it used to be, you know, I'm glad there was a discussion about PR and democracy because in the olden days, uh, and these are good olden days that I've, I'm nostalgic for, we used to have an ideological debate and people used to set out their stall and be explicit. Um, and then we had a good old contest of ideologies and visions about how to run a society. But now it's only the other side who are ideological and we're just... We're we're just doing what works. But I think, I don't know, I think there's an interesting point in relation to, you know, celebrating um, equality in the spheres of race and gender and, and uh, sexuality and so on. So I think something's interesting going on with role models, which is that, and I always feel like a, a you know, a party pooper when I talk about this, but I, I question the, the use of role models um, as a, a, a smokescreen for 
broader inequalities that still pertain. And, and you see this all the time with, um, well, all the way back to when Halle Berry won her Oscar and this was supposedly a game changer for um, African-American women in Hollywood and, and then in subsequent years not very much changed. And, and you see similar debates going on around um, uh, Obama and, and so on and, and kind of structural problems with um, racial inequality that, that still um, uh, still endure and um, in, in terms of gender also another f favourite example of mine is that whenever there's a London Fashion Week or Paris Fashion Week there's always a plus size model on the on the cover of a fashion magazine and then everyone says oh isn't it wonderful now that we're no longer uh, obsessed with um, uh, thin models and then of course that very visible publicised exception to the rule um, serves to conceal the uh, the majority reality, which is that most models are pencil thin. So, I think, and I think there's also another aspect to this, which is um, I'm not really answering your question about whether propaganda is just on the other side. No, no, but, you, you are actually. But, it, but in terms of um, the sort of what are called the culture wars, that that I think that what's happened is that. Whereas, I mean, all, uh, role models notwithstanding, we have achieved at least um, a more cultural tolerance of difference and diversity, um, even though that is sometimes lip service. But I think that that, that means that, uh, in, a, in a funny sort of way, that, that we don't pay so much attention to socioeconomic forms of inequality that uh, we can feel good about being more tolerant and diverse uh, and, and equal in terms of um, demographics and, and race and sexuality and so on, but that that allows us to, to, to focus less attention on economic and social um, inequality, which is, which is, you know, running rampant in, in, in the West, uh, in the UK and the, uh, and the US. So I think, I think there's a problem there. Um. Yeah, actually, you know, I was bringing this up with our tweet master, uh, Greg Hill. By the way, you may tweet us at WNPR Colin. You may call us at 860-275-7266. We're getting a lot of tweets at WNPR Colin. And Greg was sort of bringing up the same thing, which is, you know, people, people can cheer for something on, on television or on a stage or something like that. And, and that may be very different from how they process it in their real life. If uh, somebody moves in next door or if they have to deal with somebody in the workplace, that's different maybe from how they experience it as culture. On the other hand, Jason Stanley, you know, one of the things, one of the battles that appeared to be lost circa starting around 1988, where uh, Michael Dukakis was uh, terminally branded a Massachusetts liberal, uh, was this word liberal. You know, it just wasn't going to be a very good thing to be a liberal for a really long time. Now we see it crawling back. The latest polling indicates um, that the, the number of Americans um, who take liberal positions on issues uh, is climbing. The percentage of Americans who identify themselves as social liberals now equals the percentage of people who identify themselves as social conservatives. This may go back to what Elian was saying about how the culture war played out and how that may be actually a little bit of a smokescreen. But it does seem as though, and I don't know whether this is absent a propaganda campaign or because of the failure of reality to match propaganda, but it does seem as though these things move in cycles as opposed to straight lines of decline or ascent. I agree they move in cycles. Uh, there's a couple different issues you're raising here. Uh, one is about uh, particular words and the associations with particular words like liberal. For example, there was an attempt to brand the president as a socialist, um, and it backfired because socialism became much more popular 
as a result. So you can have lots of, of popularity. Uh, you can have lots of poor propaganda campaigns. Uh, as far as this notion of tolerance, uh, you know, the arc of history bending towards justice, uh, I'm not sure it's that easy. And this connects to the point just made uh, brilliantly about uh, role models. I mean, uh, if you look at broad classes of individuals, uh, what does uh, what does the acceptance of Caitlyn Jenner mean for uh, impoverished transsexuals in prison and their status? Uh, let's look at trans, trans, transvestites, transsexuals all across the board uh, and look at them as a group. If we focus on role models, we might be patting ourselves on the back. And this is there's a debate now. Uh, between Michelle Alexander and my colleague at Yale, Vashla Weaver, about whether to call this era that we live in the new Jim Crow or a second reconstruction. And it precisely is about role models because in Jim Crow, all blacks were oppressed. There were no black senators and black congressmen and wealthy black people and wealthy black entertainers and wealthy black uh, uh, business people, so we could say, "Oh, look at how well that group of people is doing." Um, but whereas in Reconstruction there was still massive oppression of black citizens, uh, but there were a few successful blacks who were used to cover that over. And so Weaver argues that we're more in an era like Second Reconstruction, like Reconstruction, where there's a few role models who are allowed to make us think that everything is okay, but we don't look at the broad class of uh, of people. We don't look at the broad class of blacks. We don't look at the broad class of transsexuals. Uh, we don't look at the broad class of disabled and see, well, are they occupying the ranks of the poor uh, to a disproportionate amount? Um, and then there are furthermore questions about Different groups, for instance, everyone has uh, everyone has gay family members. Not everyone has black family members, so that's going to be a big difference in how people uh, react to uh, to those two different uh, groups. Um, before we lose Elian, the night is falling. It's getting uh, dark there uh, in Great Britain. Before we lose Elian, I wanted to bring up one uh, another thing, which uh, I know that you've written about, uh, and it, it's. It's really beautifully laid out in Sir Tom Stoppard's new play, The Hard Problem, where he, he gets into this sort of question of who gets let inside the velvet rope of science. Uh, some things get waved in and some things have to sit outside. And sometimes it seems, so the characters say, or some of the characters in the play say, a little bit arbitrary <laughs> who gets this and who doesn't. But, you know, Jason's been talking about words and, and how the words that we put on things are really important and the, the mantle uh, of, of uh, acceptance that gets conferred. And one thing that you've talked about a lot is how science is is sort of an automatically accepted thing as long as you can get somebody to agree that it's science, right? Yeah, yeah. Science is an interesting example because in a sense that science is great in that it's an em empirical reality check, uh, combating propaganda. Um, but my problem, I suppose, <clears throat> is is with science that uh, strays from uh, empiricism and in, <clears throat> into the realms of, say, uh, neuro neuroscientific extrapolation, genetic extrapolation, so that we say um, we have lots of scientists who, who write 
best-selling books in the media and who are um who who study animals um but then extrapolate from um the animal world to the human world and uh and make all sorts of claims about differences between men and women um that men are good at maths and uh, uh, should have many uh, more part, part, sexual partners than women, that women are homemakers, empathetic, um, and are just looking to settle down. Um, and so I think that the sort of propagandist element in uh, modern sort of pseudo-scientific discussions um, is the element that takes that that borrows the the hard fact um, reputation of science, and you and applies it to something which isn't scientific at all. And you see this a lot in in neuroscience that all sorts of claims are made um, uh, from mapping the brain, which is nothing really to do with actual neuroscience. It's more to do with tendentious claims about um, stereotypes about gender and so on. So. But I think the propagandist, I think, I think where propaganda comes in is it, it's always about a blind spot. So if we can, as you um, implied earlier on, if, you can, if we can see that it's propaganda, then our hackles are raised, our sceptical goggles are on, and, um, and we can identify the spin. But as soon as things are presented as hard fact, uh, that's when you get the propaganda creeping in. And so that's why you see it in science, but you also see it in politics with them uh, going back to uh, you know, uh, the hard hats and the high vis jackets and the the working people, it's it's always when you get references to things that which are very concrete, which are very practical, down to earth, technocratic. That's when you get the propaganda, the ideological subtext uh, creeping in undercover. All right, actually, I should tell you, Jason and I are both wearing high vis jackets right now, but <laughs> we haven't taken anything that you've said personally, and I know that you have to go. Elian uh, Glazer, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been great to thank have you. Thank you for having me. Thank All right. you. And uh, Jason and I are going to mop things up here in the final segment. We'll take a break. We'll come back to do that. <laughs> price of a free society is allowing misogynistic Robin Thicke videos, then I say, let's end freedom. Betsy Kaplan and I, Kyone Wolf, claim to have produced today's show, and our interns who are absolutely not kept in containers without access to water for hours on end are Alex Dubin, Hallie St. Germain, and Allison Ehrenreich. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Ice Cube. For articles, show pages, and Faith Middleton Show staff propaganda videos about Campari grapefruit popsicles, visit our website, wnpr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, why do the eagles cause such terrible fights? And now, back to Colin. Yeah, I just want to say, we've done three very serious, high-minded shows so far this week. Our Monday show about race and, and the symbols of racism. Uh, we've done our, our Tuesday show was about climate change, a very, very deep dive into the modern science and economics of climate change. Today's show is uh, a pretty deep look with a Yale philosopher uh, at the notion of propaganda. So tomorrow, 
And these were all done by very ta- three very different and very talented producers. Tomorrow's a show that was my idea. And it's the, 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 the people get into fistfights about the rock band, the Eagles. So I want to find out what fault lines. It could, it could connect to some of Jason's theses. So there may be sort of underlying fault lines that the Eagles represent. Anyway, that's going to be tomorrow's show. It'll be considerably more lowbrow than these three. So, um, Jason Stanley, I know that you share a lot of the thoughts that Elian just um, uh, exhibited about uh, or expressed about science and technicism. But I want to just sort of go one step further and say it seems to me that one of the products of what she's describing is a rejection of of all forms of proof by a lot of people. In other words, I think we've almost kind of reached a sort of post-enlightenment point where there's no such thing as empirical proof. Whereas if I, where, where if I bring out a study that says the children of same-sex couples do really well, and here it is, or a study that says the opposite, that um, – your reaction to it will depend entirely on which camp you're in, and you'll tend to discount. Uh, There's something wrong with the study, obviously, if it doesn't say what you believe, right? We've we've kind of reached a point where empirical proof almost is impossible. Yeah, I mean, part of that is the fault of a public discourse that misuses empirical proof that, I mean, look at what the economists did to our set. When we represent theorizing about society, when we represent... Uh, economics as a science, uh, as if there's no value assumptions in questions about how to distribute the goods of society, uh, then we undermine the project of science. So that's very problematic. Also, uh, we don't have a complete story of things. So, you know, there's no complete story of the social world. So any selection of one part of that story is going to be somewhat ideological. Uh, So if you just select crime rates without talking about poverty rates, well, that is a one-sided presentation of the facts. So, and there's never going to be a time where every fact about the social world is in. So in a sense, some of the combat about empirical reality, particularly social reality, um, is inevitable. It's because we just don't have all you can't present all the facts simultaneously, and you have to counter uh, one set of facts with a broader set of facts that will hopefully give you a larger perspective. So we have to we have to people have to realize that certainty about the social world is not something we're going to easily get. Um, so uh, so I think that's that's one aspect. Another aspect. Uh, so so when people present partial views as certain, and when people present investigations into the social world as science that clearly aren't, like, what is the best distribution uh, of society's goods? Well, that's a value decision that we as a society have to make together. And we can't farm that decision out to some expert at Yale or Harvard who tells us that math and science tell tell us this is the way to go. Um, They can tell us certain things, but they can't make those value decisions for us. So I think we're somewhat complicitous in the undermining of science. The other thing, and this is something Dan Kahan, my colleague at Yale Law School, investigates with regard to climate change, is that in public discussions, we're often not actually arguing in any rational way. We're responding to buzzwords. So he finds that people very strongly respond to uh, human-caused climate change. So, you know, even uh, you have a right-wing conservative scientist, they might say they might actually practice in their own or evolution is another example. They might actually in their lab, you know, presuppose evolution 
But when you start talking about evolution as a natural process, you key their ideology, you key their group affiliation, and they're like, okay, this is, this is the camp I'm in. Right. And group affiliation is really important. Yes. The buzzwords are really important, and Frank Luntz on the Republican side, George Lakoff on the, on the Democratic side are really trying to look at this kind of loaded language that does kick specific tripwires. And we're running out of time here, but uh, you talk about another Kahan experiment in which people are asked to react to a group of protesters. What should be done about them? And uh, depending on what you think they're doing and what group you identify with, you have different reactions. But, you know, you talk a lot about group identification. It seems to me it's easy. Instead of selling 20 ideas to uh, a person, I, I can sell one idea, you know. I mean, and, and, and so the idea is you're in this group. And whatever. And if I tell you here's what this group believes about cloning, then that's what you believe about cloning. Jerry Seinfeld talks about how, you know, because baseball teams trade their players away, we're basically just rooting for laundry now. We kind of do that in, in our political discourse, too. You root for the laundry, and whatever's in the laundry, you're going to root for kind of do that. That's what we do. The Democrats and Republicans agree on a large variety of things that the same financial backers support. And if you look at Americans, Americans care deeply about campaign finance reform. They care deeply about a lot of things that the major parties really, that really are not centrally on major party agendas. Do Americans really care deeply about the estate tax that affects only 5,600 American families? Why is that so much on the Republican Party agenda? It's because it's a football game. It's their team versus my team. And that's and the more you make it a football t- team, the, a football game, the more you can pre- present politics as just, you know, this this battle where you're happy because your team wins, even though actually uh, no, no points have been scored for your real side. Um, and just to the back to your conversation about buzzwords, Frank Lund said you should never say estate tax. You should say death tax oh, yeah. because an estate is where Sir Charles Spen- Lord Charles Spencer lives. He lives on the estate of Althorpe. Death tax. You, we're sort of back to that question of what does everybody have? Everybody dies. Yes. So death tax right. is bad. Not right. everybody feels like they have an estate, right? Yeah, that's exactly why. That's why I use estate tax always. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why Lund's. Uh, uses death tax because it's this way to say, actually, we care about everyone in eliminating the death tax because everyone dies. You put your finger on it. All right. So uh, our guests today have been Elian Glazer, who's long gone, off to bed in England. Uh, her book, Get Real, How to See Through the Hype, Spin, and Lives of Modern Life. In the studio, I've been talking to Jason Stanley, professor of philosophy at Yale and the author of several books, most recently, How Propaganda Works. We'll be back tomorrow. I'm going to drag us down to my level tomorrow. But you'll be surprised. We're going to get deep about that. This And Robert Crisco, the absolute dean, the founder of rock criticism in America, is going to be one of our guests as we debate the Eagles. Not debate the Eagles, but debate the Eagles. Try to figure out why the Eagles cause so much trouble. What do they symbolize? Today's program brought to you by the Second Floor Rage Virus Monkeys, an Instagram photo from last night's cloudy sky, bladeless knives, and Nabisco.